Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh shall come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one who you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of morning and evening to shout for joy. Those are the first eight verses of Psalm 65 which along with Psalm 64 are the psalms appointed for today, Monday, July the 25th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being with us today. Um, Looking at, uh, sort of wrapping up a couple of things today, one of which is the book of Joshua uh, in chapter 24, verses 16 to 33. We're in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, verses 24 to 31, and then in um, Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 16, the first 16 verses. <clears throat> so, like I said, we jumped way forward <laughs> in Joshua. I'm not quite sure why we went from chapter 9 to chapter 23 overnight, um, but then now, here we are at the end of the book. So Joshua has called the people to choose life, choose following the Lord as opposed to, to following their own way of going. So the people answered him, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it's the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites, who lived in the land. Therefore we will serve the Lord, for he's our God. So it's a good answer. Because we're not going to leave the Lord and forsake him and serve other gods because, well, look at all he's done for us. He brought us out of Egypt. He preserved us in the wilderness, and then he drove the people out before us. So it's a good answer because they're saying, hey, why would we go after somebody else, uh, some other god? Because look all he's done for us. We'd be foolish to do that. And they're right, and, and they will be. <laughs> but Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord, for he's a holy god. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. So is Joshua arguing here that God won't actually forgive the people of their sins, in spite of the fact that in Exodus 34, it was pretty clear, in fact, it's very clear, that he would do just that. That's Joshua's not trying to suggest that he's not that kind of a God. He is a holy God, and he is a jealous God, just as as he says here. But the sins that won't be forgiven, he enumerates when he says, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. So if you go in the other direction and you start serving foreign gods, then you won't um, be forgiven for that. He will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And it's exactly what, what the truth is. This is that God will turn on his people, but there's always a remnant. But they have to be. I mean, they are to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. And so if they won't make him known, then then that's a problem. So that's why Paul's argument was that, that at the time, 
what's going on is is that Israel has been rejected, although there's a remnant, uh, in favor of the Gentiles because he wants a people who will make him known. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we'll serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you're witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. In other words, what he's saying is, is that you've spoken it, now do it. Your witnesses against yourselves means that you, you've got to do it now. And if you fail to do this, if you fail to love and serve him, then your witnesses against yourselves. Because you said, you took a vow here. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. What Joshua is saying is you're already in the midst of this serving other gods thing. This, that, that horse has already left the barn. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. Which is exactly what they said at Sinai. That they said, we will do and we will listen. So here they say the same thing. We will serve and we will, his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. So he's adding a book to the canon. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth, which is a tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Now, years ago, I mean, you're talking about maybe 20 years almost, um, I was counseling a couple who were having marital problems, to say the least, um, it was a messy situation. They they were trying at some level to get back together. They'd been separated actually for years, and then they were trying to get back together. And so they came and asked me to do a renewal of vows ceremony, and, and I said, "No, I'm not going to do that. You all are not ready for that. You just had a good time together last night, and so now you want this." And, and they said, "Okay. So how about this? How about?" She's going to move it back into the house, and we'd like you to come bless the house. And so I got Suzanne and said, hey, I want you to go with me to these people's house because I'm going to bless the house for them. And we went in, and he had made a little handwritten sign that said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so he says, I did this last night, and this is a reminder as we come into the house that this is what's going to go on, that, that we've chosen. And I had to say, that stands as a witness against you. And it did. <clears throat> that. Um, getting back together didn't last very long, let's, let's say it that way. So Joshua wrote all these down. He says, the stone shall be a witness, and he sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. In other words, the conquest of the land, while it wasn't complete, was sufficient that there, the, the tribes had their own land. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnah, Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Sort of like what you read at the beginning of the book of Exodus, because then uh, Pharaoh arose who didn't know Joseph. And, and so it, it's sort of that, that in the next generation, then there, there's, they've forgotten so there was the generation that was there with Joshua, and then they, they, so they followed during that generation because it was still fresh, and then afterwards, not so much. 
As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the place of piece of land that Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died, the priest, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. So that generation that was in the wilderness, the leaders of that generation are now passing on, and we're going to move from Joshua to Judges, the, the period of the Judges, which is after Joshua and ends with Samuel, because then after Samuel, the monarchy well, during Samuel's time, the monarchy is instituted, and Samuel has to anoint two different people <laughs> to be to be king, and that would be Saul and David. So in the gospel lesson today, remember Jesus is being tried before Pilate, and so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing because he had asked the crowd, what do you want me to do? Who do you want me to release? And they said, Barabbas, the criminal. And then he said, what do you want me to do with Jesus, the one who's called the Christ? And they said, crucify him. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Well, they can't really do that. What he's trying to do is distance himself rather than use the power that he had, because he had the ability to do nothing here. But the problem is, is that the Roman order is being broken because this riot is about to erupt over Jesus. And it makes no sense. I mean, if you look back only five days, then you'll get yourself back to Palm Sunday. And you think, how in the world could we have gone from acclaiming him as king to now demanding that he be crucified? What claim did he make that we weren't prepared to receive? We proclaimed him as the son of David, the Messiah, the messianic king. Now, why are we shouting crucify him. I mean, this is, this is a perfect example of what can happen in a mob. And you see it with Paul at Ephesus and other places as well, that, that somebody will start a lie, and then everybody believes it, and then suddenly things have spun completely out of control, and that's what's going on here. The people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. And there's a serious irony in that, because that's the only way of salvation, is that Jesus' blood come on us and our children. And so it's important that, um, that they see this, and we see what they're actually saying. They say, we'll take the blame for this. It's a, it's a remarkable thing that, that they, who have no earthly idea what's going on, that they're willing to take the blame for the death of this innocent man. And that's exactly what Pilate's trying to say. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Because <clears throat> he had that's part of the punishment there for death sentence. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. I mean, this is a, a pathetic looking sight here that they've, they've scourged him and now the soldiers are mocking him and they put this kind of pathetic reed in his hand. I mean, the picture of this is, is just horrifying. Um, to, to see what the the inhumanity of this and the, and the complete lack of regard for another human being. It, it's miserable. And so the Romans can't escape the, their blame in this either because they're doing this horrible thing. And, and so they've dressed him up like a king, put a crown on his head, and given him a scepter, which is just this reed. 
And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. It's a horrible, horrible thing to read and to even begin to imagine what this would have looked like if we had been there in this situation to see these soldiers treating Jesus with absolute contempt. And, and they had to know that he hadn't done anything wrong either. But it's their contempt for the Jews that they're showing as well in this. In the Romans passage, Paul's wrapping up and, and uh, ending his letter here. He says, I com- and, and, and what he does is he, he lists this enormous group of people <laughs> that he knows by name and knows who they are. And it's a remarkable thing that Paul knew so many people and there, that that he could greet them by name and point them out to people. It, it's, it's not normal for most leaders, for instance, to be able to do this. But Paul was personally involved in the works that he, that he planted, all the things that he did. He cared about the people that he preached to on an individual basis, not just a group of people, but, but on an individual basis. And so here he goes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Syncre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she's been a patron of many and of myself as well. In other words, she has helped provide for Paul's needs and, and many others as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, who we meet in the book of Acts, the ones who instruct um, losing my mind, Apollos, uh, at, who has preached at Ephesus and brought the gospel there, but he only knew the baptism of John, and so they gave him a more complete instruction on, quote, the way. So he, he didn't know about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they had to tell him about these things. He says, Breek, Prisca, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. So they must have been in Rome at that time. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. So they were, they were Christians before I was a Christian, is what he's saying. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, my fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodion. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trophenia and Trophosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. This Rufus, we believe, may have been, because he's the redhead, um, somebody who had been really important in the early church, maybe a son of um, of the man who carried his cross. It, it's a, um, an amazing thing who these people are and where they show up in, in Scripture. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. So Paul shows here that, that he cares about these people. He cares about them as individuals, and he invites and encourages the church in Rome to greet all these people because they're important people in Paul's world. He's not naming people who are important in the eyes of the world. He's he's naming people who are important to him. 
in his world. And so what we get in all these lessons is, is a very simple thing, and that is we're encouraged to follow all the way to the end. We're encouraged to continue to follow him in all things and to submit ourselves, no matter what people may say to us, in order that we might win some. Because if you look at Paul's life, what you see is is that he was beaten with rods. He went through a lot of the same physical torment that Jesus went through. And yet he continued and persevered in all things. No matter what people did to him, how they came against him, Paul continued to preach one message, and that's of Jesus Christ and him crucified. We're called to do exactly the same thing. We're called to be like Joshua, people who are willing to take a stand and, and then when you're challenged, to stand there and to stay and to say, no, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord because he stood steadfast under intense pressure, under uh, the most grotesque punishment you can even begin to imagine, and he stood firm for love of us. Now let's do the same for love of him.